Good morning, church. Good morning. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Thanks. Thanks. I got, um, I had a birthday this week. Yeah, I turned older. That's how it works, right? Um, and uh, Fran Hart wins for best card because it was one of those singing cards that you open and it starts to play a song. So I want to thank Fran for the best card that soon became the worst card if you have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. <laughs> because I now know the first half of one second of that, of that card so well, because it's all I hear. Uh, I was making my son lunch yesterday, and he was out in the backyard reading something, and with like his back to me, and then he came back in five minutes later, he's like, hey, Dad, I was just outside. Just, I know you said we couldn't open the card anymore, so I took it outside, uh, and I was just listening to it for like five minutes, and uh, said it's a pretty good song. It's pretty short, but it's good. So, thanks, Fran. Um, Thank you guys for the birthday wishes. Um, so we are in 1 Samuel 22, and we are looking now at, um, uh, well, things are getting crazier and crazier with Saul every day. The villain of the story is coming, becoming incredibly clear, and his, uh, his insanity, his irrational behavior is going to continue to reach these incredible new heights each time we revisit him. David has, uh, as Pastor Matt talked about last week, David and Jonathan had this incredible friendship, a friendship that was so strong and genuine and sincere that Jonathan actually told David, he warned him that his father was going to kill him, treason essentially. And because of that, David was able to escape. And so David escaped, he ran and fled with nothing, taking nothing with him, alone. He took no one with him, and he ran. Days in, he uh, found a temple, and he asked a priest. He lied to a priest and told him that Saul had sent him, and he was to give him some bread. And the priest said, we only have bread who is, uh, that's available for people who are, uh, who are consecrated, who have not been with a woman. You know, it's a certain type of, of holy bread uh, set apart. And David says, that's okay. It's for me. Uh, and my, me and my men were totally fine with that. And so he gives David bread. That's how David eats, is he's homeless, he has nothing. And David then asks this priest, who we have now just heard about the end of this priest, essentially. David asks him, he says, uh, do, you have any, do you have any weapons? I left so quickly my king that I didn't bring weapons with me. And the priest says, well, I happen to have the sword that you took from Goliath here wrapped in cloth. And so he gives it to David, and David takes his bread, and he takes his sword, and he goes, and he lives in a cave. He lives in a cave alone, uh, at least not for very long, because eventually word gets out to his family, and they join him. And not only does his family join him, but a huge group of what the Bible calls completely worthless men. This is the life of the man who slayed the giant, the man who's been anointed by God to be king, the man that God has chosen. He is half naked, starving, and living in a cave, running for his life, knowing that the very king, the other king that God put into power, is after him and is bent on his destruction. And it doesn't help that the king also seems to be insane because that means he's completely unpredictable. The last thing that you would think looking at this 
is that God has any idea what he's doing if he's really in charge of this. But what we see here is something that we don't talk about much in 1 Samuel, uh, which is uh, the way that David handles something and what it has to show us about the way we would handle the exact same kind of situation. You see, we've said a lot that in the Old Testament, it's really easy to just reduce people to good guys and bad guys and then say, what we're supposed to do is just try to be like this guy, like this person, except for when they did that, and then except for when they did that, and then except for when they did that. But it's not that simple. And yet there are times that we come across where it is very clear that what is happening gives us an idea of how we are told, how we are to handle the situation that this person is in. And what we see David do in this situation with Saul is something that is so easily overlooked, even though we all have been in a similar situation because we have all faced an enemy. We have all been under a person or felt the victim of someone who was bent on our destruction, even if they didn't know it. The way that David handles this is a lesson to us about what it means to actually live a life of faith when you are suffering, especially when that suffering can be traced back to a person. Not even just a person, really. When it can be traced back to something clear. I want to go back to the first five verses of this chapter. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David is dealing with a true enemy here. We had just, after this, what we read about was Saul uh, finding out and then tracking down and then killing the priest who helped David. And not only that priest, but their family, their people, their animals. Saul is indeed a bad guy. But Saul isn't the problem. One of the hardest things for us to wrap our mind around in this situation is the idea that Saul is not actually the problem. You see, God does love David, has anointed David, and wants David to be better than he is. He wants David to trust him more than he does. And so God is doing something in David's life, and he is using Saul to do it. And if all David cared about was ending it, 
with solving it, fixing it, or simply defeating the enemy, the cause, then it would stop. Which is exactly why David does what he does now and will continue to do things as we look in the weeks to come that don't entirely make sense, even to the point of having opportunities to kill Saul and not doing it. When God wants to use someone, he takes them to school. This school is not easy. It is a school of suffering. It is a school that involves pain. And in the case of David, it nearly killed the student. But it is because God loves David that he brings him through this. And God loves us. And he does the very same thing with us. But few people will graduate. Because most drop out. Most say, I just can't take it. I just can't accept what this says to me about reality, about God, and most painfully about myself. This is how you do it. This is how you get through it. Number one, this is what David knew and what we must learn if we are to be shaped by God in the way that David was, that we can actually grow in the way that David did. Number one, don't get stuck on the problem or the villain. Could it be any clearer who the problem is here? It could not be any clearer. Saul is losing support all around him. Saul is doing irrational, crazy things. How easily David could simply fixate and focus himself on Saul, this man who is bent on his destruction, the problem at hand, and live in that place. When we suffer, when we are in pain, our first instinct is to find the source of that pain. We rarely see the source of the pain in ourselves. It is to find it in someone else, in something else. And there is nothing easier for us than when we even agree with each other on what the source of a certain suffering or pain is in our life. When we agree on a villain, when we agree on a problem and the root of it being such, being the kind of thing that takes it out of the realm of this might be bigger than that. The reason that it would be bigger is this, because God wants to do something in you. Because he loves you and he wants to do something in you, he has allowed you to be in this situation, under this person, or stuck with the burden of this problem. And the worst thing that you can do is fixate, get stuck on the problem, on the villain. Because when you do that, it becomes about them. It becomes about that thing. It becomes about finding, simply finding a solution, simply trying to fix it. Now, this is not to mean that we are to go throughout our entire lives never trying to solve problems in our lives. But there are points when we are in situations that we cannot change. Situations that we don't seem to have control over. And when we can tie that back to other people even, there is something vindicating about that. 
Saul is clearly the bad guy here, but there's a problem with that. Who chose Saul? God chose Saul. Who gave Saul a spirit, a disturbed spirit that made him crazy? God did. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. It is so easy to look and say, no, the problem is Pharaoh, the problem is uh, Cain, the problem is the Ninevites, the problem is Saul, the problem are the bad guys, the problem's Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. These are the problems, these are the bad guys. But if God is in control, then it means that he's not very good at his job in constantly allowing bad guys to do things like this. And we find ourselves sometimes, when we get fixated on the problem and the enemy, then we cannot get past it. What we do is we begin to lose confidence in who God is, and we just throw our hands up and say, I don't know, I don't know why he would let this happen. I don't know why he would let me be dealing with this person or dealing with this situation. We just... We don't know. We kind of throw our hands up. If you can really put the blame on a person, then you never have to look inward at yourself and say, what is the thing that God is doing to me in school today? The author Eugene Peterson in his book, A Tale of Three Kings, talks about this, what God is doing in David, and he says it this way. I don't have this up on the screen, but I'll just read it. He says, you have your eyes on the wrong king, Saul. As long as you look at your king, you will blame him and him alone for your present hell. But be careful, for God has his eyes fastened sharply on another king, Saul. Not the visible one standing up there throwing spears at you. No, God is looking at another King Saul. One just as bad or worse. God is looking at the King Saul in you. In me, Saul is in your bloodstream, in the marrow of your bones. He makes up the very flesh and muscle of your heart. He is mixed into your soul. He inhabits the nuclei of your atoms. King Saul is one with you. Saul was throwing spears at David, and even though he got pretty good at dodging them, he still got pretty severely hurt in this fight. But every swipe that took a piece off of him refined him and turned him into the person that God was making him. If we get stuck on the Saul, if we get stuck on the person in our life who is causing us to suffer, you know, when the Bible talks about suffering, talks a lot about suffering in 1 Peter, and I'm going to read some verses from that in a second. One of the challenges when the Bible talks about suffering is that we often associate suffering with sickness and poor health because most of the times in the world in which we live, that's when we feel like we experience the most suffering. We live in a world in which we're not as war-torn as we were. We don't deal with as much of the persecution as the early church dealt with. So when we talk about suffering, we regularly will uh, connect it to when we are sick and when things happen that we can't control with our bodies. And while that is partly what the Bible talks about when it talks about suffering, most of the time it's talking about when there are things going on in your lives that you can trace back to people, institutions. You can see the person, the problem. 
I'll often ask people why they think God would let them be tormented by such enemies, and they will usually just say, man, I don't know. His ways are higher than mine, I guess. I don't know. And that'll be it. If you can put the blame on your husband or your wife, if you can put the blame on your parents, if you can put the blame on your children, if you can put the blame on your boss or the people that you have to lead, if you can put the blame on your coworkers, on your neighbor who shares the back fence with you who's a nightmare. I have five neighbors sharing a back fence with me. I actually get along with all of them. I'm probably that guy that they're all talking about. If you can put the blame on the president, if you can put the blame on the governor, if you can put the blame on someone or something like that, then you just got a free ticket out of school because it's not about you anymore. It's not about what God's doing in your life. Do you know how hard it is not to put the blame on something else when we're collectively suffering? Imagine what that was like for the early church who was being persecuted collectively by people that they could see and point to. But instead of seeing the persecutor, instead of fixating on the problem or the villain, they instead said, what is God doing in us? How is God shaping us? Don't get stuck on the problem or the villain. Get past it and ask what God is doing in you. Don't feel sorry for yourself. This is the other thing that David realized. We can very easily develop something called a wartime mentality when we begin to suffer. And when we develop this mentality at the wrong time in our lives, then it excuses a lot of behavior, a lot of feelings, a lot of things that wouldn't be okay in peacetime. And when we begin to pity ourselves in the situation that we're in, we begin to lower the expectation we have upon ourselves, how we handle it, how we act, if we even have faith at all. First Peter talks about suffering and says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love this. He's saying, don't be surprised when suffering comes and be like, what is this thing that's happening to me? I've never seen or experienced anything heard about this ever in the lives of people. No, suffering is a part of life. And God uses it. And rather than be shocked and surprised and immediately overwhelmed with feelings of self-pity, accept it as a part of life and something that the God who loves you uses to refine you. Celebrate and rejoice in it knowing that you are like Christ as you suffer. And that just as you experience the suffering he did, you can experience too the glory that he did. Don't feel sorry for yourself because God knows what he's doing. And if God knows what he's doing, we don't need to feel sorry for ourselves. We can stand up and we can dust ourselves off and we can say, what does it mean to be faithful to God now? What is God showing me in this? Not, who does God want me to deal with, get rid of, 
What problem does God want me to, to fix collectively for all of us? Maybe if I can just vent or focus on the thing going on and just express it because of how, of how badly I'm feeling as a result. Maybe somehow God will honor that and God will use that and it will be this great thing. Instead of going, what is the thing that God is doing in me as God did in David? If God had not taken David to school, school in a cave, School homeless, running for his life, barefoot, being surrounded by worthless people, a king, essentially, of worthless people. He, too, would have become like Saul. And because God loved him, he gave him a way out of that. You can't be shaped and grown while you're wallowing in self-pity. Pity is like a vacation from life. When we feel pity for ourselves constantly, all we do is cope. I can drink, I can binge, I can gossip, I can vent, I can rage, I can become self-absorbed. I can turn to any one of a thousand things that will bring me just a few moments of respite, a few moments of rest, or yeah, I know maybe this isn't the best thing to do right now, but you know... Things are hard, and, and it's wartime, and so it's okay for me to do this. It's okay for me to say this. It's okay for me to act this way. It's okay for me to be completely defined by the fearfulness that I have because of the person that I'm under, the situation that I'm in. When we feel sorry for ourselves and we don't trust that God is in control, we excuse a lot of sin in our lives, and we excuse a lack of growth, which is the very thing that David had to deal with. In 1 Peter, we read this. Finally, all of you, having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is saying to the church, when you suffer, don't return evil for evil. Don't let the pain bring out the worst in you which is what we do when we're the victim of something. Instead, have a unity of mind, sympathy. Don't become cold-hearted and calloused and protective and defensive, but be sympathetic. Show love towards someone. Don't think about the situation that you're in, but instead get outside of yourselves and say, how do I continue to love others? How do I have a tender heart that is not calloused? and frozen over, but that is soft. How can I still allow myself to be opened up and even vulnerable instead of defensive and protective? How can I have a humble mind? Rather than allow this situation that I'm in and the suffering I'm going through, give me a sense of superiority, a sense of being right. Because especially when we can all agree on who or what is wrong, it makes us feel so much better about ourselves. I have, at times in my life, loved nothing more than reveling in finding a problem or a villain. I have found, at first it was bad, but then it became like an addiction. And that it was in those times that I sometimes felt the best about myself. How is it possible that while 
angry at someone else, that while fixated on someone else, that while feeling trapped or feeling like I'm suffering, like I'm a victim, that I could feel better about myself than any other time because those are the times that it's easiest for me to stop thinking about what God is doing in me, about what God is doing in my life. If we can all agree on a common enemy, then we don't have to worry about anything else, especially like ourselves. The last thing we read this also in First Peter. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with the gentleness and respect. We think of this defense of the hope that is in you as like apologetics, as having theological arguments to give people who doubt the existence of God. But what this is referring to is that you are quite literally a person who is handling trials so differently from others around you that people are like, what is the deal with you? What is this hope within you and where does it even come from? And we are the people with the privilege who, to, give, to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within us because of the way that we handle suffering, persecution, and trial. David has found himself alone in a cave. Well, not alone for long, but he's found himself in a cave. He has found himself suffering. He knows that people doubt Saul, and he knows that he's been anointed to be king. One of the things that will amaze us the most about David is that even though God has anointed him to be king, he won't take the throne. He won't take it by force. He won't go and defeat Saul because he recognizes that God also appointed Saul king. It is so easy for us to, to see what we think God might say about the rights that we have and the, the, the defense that we are deserved, we think and to disregard the very things in the lives of other people who we think are causing us to suffer. The last thing that you see in what David did, apart from um, not getting fixated on Saul and not feeling sorry for himself, was he left alone. He left this kingdom all by himself, which is shocking to us because we know that misery loves company. Does it not? Misery loves company. When we are hurt and hurting, we want to gather around us, especially anyone else who is hurt and who is hurting, not necessarily to be better and to be healed, but to commiserate, to talk, to, to share about uh, this villain, this problem, this thing. And yet David leaves alone. He doesn't take anyone with him from the kingdom, because this is about him. And he ends up in this cave, and he ends up with a bunch of what the Bible calls our worthless people. If God's going to do something in your life through the pain and the suffering that you endure, yes, real meaningful friendships and relationships are important, like we talked about last week, but if God is going to do something in your life through the pain and suffering that you are enduring... 
If all you ever do is surround yourself with the voices of people constantly talking to and venting to and sharing with and asking from and listening from people, it will become very difficult for you to hear from God himself. But misery loves company, and the problem with that is it gets increasingly more difficult to hear God over a crowd of people. Caves make for great acoustics. And it is while he is fleeing from Saul that David would go on to write some of the greatest psalms that we have. This time of pain and suffering in his life becomes a time of tremendous growth and awareness of who God is because of his dependency on God, not on other people. He has an incredible friendship that we talked about last week that probably surpasses friendships that most of us will ever experience, and yet... He and God are going through this. He is crying out to God regularly. It is messy. It is not always happy, not joyful. It is filled with sorrow and pain and questioning of things. But he is doing it with God. And this is one of the hardest things for us to do when we suffer and when we are in pain is to actually go to God in that time. It is hard to see someone in a black and white way as a villain when you pray about that person or for that person. So we're just very good a lot of times at not praying about it and not praying for them. We ask other people to pray for us even, and yet for us, it is difficult to open that thing up and give it to God and see what he does with it. We go, but I need wise counsel and I need advice, but I need prayer and I need encouragement and I need support. This is what the people in my life are for But how can God ever tell you anything different from the people around you if you spend all of your time listening to people around you and not listening to God himself? It's like trying to have a conversation in my house with a birthday card open right next to my head, thanks to Fran. David left alone. He took no one with him. He went to a cave. He cried out to God. But people did come to him. Because strangely enough, when we go to God, when we experience suffering, he will often bring people to us. And they will often be the very last thing that we expect. He will bring people around us who are not the people that we expect. He will bring people with a word, with encouragement, with support. He will bring people who are crying out to him on our behalf. And they are not people that we expect. He brought 400 worthless men to David. These guys are, this is a phrase that's used, these, these men in dire straits, it says. These men who are, uh, this, this description of these type of people, the debtors and the embittered, uh, this is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, in other parts of um, Israel's history. This is basically, this word that means completely empty of value or worth is a person who has gotten them, they've gotten themselves into trouble They've gotten themselves uh, made out to be an outcast. They've, they've basically found themselves uh, in a place where they're like, I don't even want to be a part of this kingdom anymore because there's nothing good in it for me because of the actions and the things that I have done. These are, uh, as they describe, worthless people. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love these people. That doesn't mean that these people don't have any, um, any, any value in his eyes. 
But these are not the people that you would think David would find himself leading. We see so many parallels between David and Jesus. We see so many connections between the way you expect a king to be and the way David ends up being as a precursor to who Jesus himself would become. No one expected Jesus to be surrounded by sinners and tax collectors. No one expected him to be, have the kind of disciples that he had. Those people were considered worthless. But because of who he was and because of what God does, it doesn't matter who the people are. It matters who God is. Because God's doing something. David wrote in, in Psalm 118, which we read and will continue to read this morning in our service as we keep worshiping. He wrote, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and sat me free, set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. David is saying here, if there's one thing that he's already begun learning through this trial, this refining that God is giving him, it is that his refuge and his salvation is in God. It isn't in men, it isn't in princes, it isn't in governors, it isn't in kings. If our salvation and our hope is in God, then the problems that we face, even the biggest ones, are not there for us to focus on them, to defeat them, because God expects us to be the ones going through the world fixing everything. God is clear that he is doing something in us when we suffer. That when we ask the question, how could a loving God allow his children to suffer? How could God allow his early church to be persecuted the way that they were? How could God allow David, his anointed one, to be attacked, to be chased out at risk of death? Because God does something in the suffering if we will stay in school and let him do it. And so what do we do how do we then, if, if we don't, you know, it almost seems like what it's saying here is that when you start to suffer, leave the church, get away from everybody, go be by yourself and God, and then, I don't know, wait for a bunch of random people to show up. No, that's not what the authors in the New Testament of the early church told their church when they were suffering. They reminded their people exactly how they were to live and how they were to act towards each other when life got difficult when they could see the enemy and they could all agree that it really sure felt like if that enemy was gone, things would be better. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins because believe me, you're going to blow it. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What is our response when we are suffering individually or collectively after a year like this? Our response is to be the people who understand the value of hospitality, which is making ourselves uncomfortable so that other people can feel welcome. 
who understand what it means to love one another with a gentle, earnest heart, who desire to do what we can with the gifts God's given us as ways of expending God's grace and and sharing it with one another in the church. Rather than to keep what we have, to continue to freely give it away, all of the instincts that you would have when life gets difficult and you are suffering because of the person or the situation that you're in or you're under, fight those. Do the opposite. Love one another Stop freaking out. Know that God is in control, and it's going to be different. It'll be so different that people won't know, who know you won't go, yeah, it makes sense that you'd act that way. People who know you will go, it doesn't make sense that you're acting this way. And that is the point at which you can give a defense for the hope that is within you. My hope is that as a church, that as we handle difficulty, that we do it in such a way that it doesn't make sense. And that people would even look at us and say, why on earth? And we would say, here is the reason for the hope that is within us. I could not have talked about this the same way 15 years ago. Before I began to find myself in situations with people, under people, connected to people who I felt a victim of. I learned, as many of you have, someone gave me this book on David and Saul, actually. I learned that when you can point to a person and so clearly say they are the problem, they aren't the problem. And that when you can point to a situation or an institution so clearly and say, that's what's messing up my life, that's what's messing things up, it's not. That if you have faith in God, that rather than throw your hands up and say, I can't really make sense out of all this, we say, if God loves me and he is in control, then the question is not, who's at fault? How do I stop it? How do I fix it? And how do I make sure everybody knows about it? But instead, what is God doing in me in this? How is God refining me? And instead of feeling like he doesn't love us and he's forgotten about us, we go, could it be that God that God loves me so much that he is personal enough that he cares enough about what's going on in my heart and in my life that he would allow me to be shaped right now because I need to be. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so holy. It is so easy for us to focus on the pain, to not see past it. It is so easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves. It is so easy for us to let your voice be drowned out by the voice of others. God, these are things that we all do. Not many will graduate from your school because it is a painful one. But God, we must persist, Lord. Thank you, God, that you have given us the grace that this isn't based upon how strong we are, how resilient we are, how holy or good-natured or good-hearted we are, God. Thank you that it's your grace 
that gives us the ability to hear you and see you and know you and change, Lord. God, this has been a hard year and a half. It's been a hard year and a half for everybody. And it's no surprise that everyone around us is constantly looking for places to cast the blame of the difficulty and the suffering and the pain that we're enduring. God, you call us to be a different people. God, would we be a people who live in such a way that people would look at us and ask us to, if there's any way that we can possibly explain the hope that is within us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.